Hi, I'm Simone W. Johnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional new to the United States and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Hello, listeners, and thank you for joining us again on another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so that you do not miss an episode. Today, we have for you another very interesting episode. I'm so elated to be speaking with this guest today. Her name is Lainey Denslow. She is a leading author, speaker, and advisor on how culture shapes business practices around the world. She is the founder and principal of Worldwide Intercultural Training and Resources, providing coaching and customized programs to enhance clients' cultural awareness and ability to navigate a multicultural global business environment. She has conducted seminars for global business leaders and organizations in the U.S., China, Germany, Russia, and England. Welcome, Lainey. Thank you very much, Simone. It is a pleasure and an honor to be here with you today. And I'd like to add a little bit to the business standard introduction, for which I am grateful. But I think it might be interesting to the listeners of this podcast to know that I'm just a second generation American born in the U.S., that my grandparents on both sides of my family came to the U.S. as adults from my grandparents on my mother's side from Russia, on my father's side from Lithuania, looking for safety and a better life for them and for their families to come. So my parents were the first generation in my family born here in the U.S. It doesn't go back very far to find immigrants in my family. And I think I'm very lucky that they came and that I have been able to grow up here. Although this isn't the only place that I've lived, I actually had some cultural differences to contend with in my growing up because we moved from Seattle, Washington to Nashville, Tennessee, then to Hyattsville, Maryland, adjacent to Washington, DC, each place distinctly different. But you know, when you're a middle school and junior high school student, you don't think of those differences so much as culture. You just know that it's different. As an adult, As a working adult, I went back to graduate school and got a master's of international business and an MBA from Pepperdine University. And the MIB program was taught partly in France, which was great because I had the opportunity to live in Paris and to work there for a while. And it was in graduate school that I was 
introduced to this concept of cultural differences. It was a revelation to me. Absolutely amazing information to have that there were cultural differences and that the impact of the cultural differences in how people did business, how difficult it was when people didn't understand each other was amazing to me. And I decided I should make it my work to be sure that people understood those differences so they could work better together. And I would tell you that I'm still working on that. That idea is still critically important to me. And I believe it's critically important for all of us. So today, I hope I can make a contribution to everybody by sharing some of my perspective about the American culture as it pertains to building connections, building relationships, doing business. I strongly believe that business is really about relationships. We all work together to achieve some goals that are related to our business, but it's the relationships we have with each other that make it work. So that's a little background about me. Yeah. So Lainey, you mentioned that you lived in Hyattsville there for a moment. I also lived in Hyattsville as I listened and really? thinking about the um, <laughs> connections that we're making. I studied international business in my undergraduate work and I lived in Hyattsville there for a short time, maybe about a year. I was in Maryland on and off for about 10 to 13 years as I worked for Department of State. And so I lived in Hyattsville there for about a year before I moved to Silver Spring. So I'm very fond of that Maryland side of things of the DMV. That's awesome. You never know, do you, what connections there will be when you meet somebody new. It was a great place to live. We weren't there for a long time, but it was a great experience. Yes. No, I loved Maryland. I enjoyed and have very fond memories of my time in the Washington, D.C. area, getting to know Virginia side of things, the D.C. side of things, the Maryland side of things, just so rich and full of culture. I still miss it, and I I hope to be back soon to visit and see how things are. So it looks like you've been gone for a while. You're now on the west side of the country. I am. I have lived most of my adult life in California, first in Los Angeles, And then eight years ago, I moved here to San Jose, Northern California. I'd lived in San Francisco at one point. I was the director of international affairs for the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising and are headquartered in L.A. So I was in L.A. for quite a long time, long enough that people would say that I probably had a dual passport that I could be in Northern California and Southern California. (laughs) Wonderful. But, oh, wow. How interesting to be working for a fashion institute. Did you get exposed to some of the interesting stuff that they were putting out? Well, it's a college. So, yes, I got exposed to a lot of interesting things about retail and fashion. When my boss recruited me, she told me that nothing was more international than fashion and retail. And that since I had just completed an international degree and was back in LA after having been in Paris for so long, that I should come work with the college. And I did. And it was a 
fabulous experience. And I'll tell some stories as we go, maybe about that experience. Wonderful, wonderful. And so you tell the story of how you decided to contribute to the work of making sure that people understand each other. And I'm looking here at one of your book called Working with Americans. Can you tell us a bit about the book? We'll go in detail throughout our talk today. But what other books may you have put out that we are not aware of? The one that you have is the second edition of this book. So I wrote it with a colleague that I met at a networking event years ago, who is now based in London. And I also wrote a book titled Worldwise What to Know Before You Go, which was written with the American business person in mind as an attempt to explain something to an American making their first foray into the global business environment. And it's about culture and history and practical information. So if you're starting to do business outside the US, it might be a good guide. And that the book Working with Americans is useful to people who are starting to work with American teams or bosses or come to the US It's always hard to explain your own culture, but we, Allison and I, my co-author, hope that we've shed some light on some things that are puzzling, surprising, sometimes delighting other people. Wonderful. So as you mentioned, your first book uh, catered for Americans going abroad and interacting with international community it brings up a question. So what is the American culture? What is the culture of the United (laughs) States? And who are these American or those Americans? (laughs) So that is a question that we probably could talk about for days is what is the culture of the United States and who are those Americans? And I think in the time we have together, I'm going to try to give you and our listeners some insights to elements of the culture, but culture broadly taken, whether it's U.S. or Chinese or South African, it's about the values and concepts that we all hold that answer the question, how am I supposed to live my life, relate with other people? and do business. It's about our shared ideas about how to answer those questions. And every country, even every company, sometimes every profession has a culture of rules that they believe are the right way to do things. And the challenge is the answers to how are we supposed to do things are different in different places. And that we all assume which is reasonable, that our way is the right way. Maybe the right way isn't quite the answer. Because we're raised in a certain culture, that's what we know and believe. And we expect other people to know and believe the same things. And we're surprised and puzzled when they don't. And that's where we get these disconnects, where people don't communicate in ways that everybody can understand. And we'll talk about communication in a couple of minutes. That's sort of a non-answer to your question, but you can't answer what is somebody's culture in just a couple sentences. It doesn't matter 
what country you're talking about. Culture is all the different ways that we believe we're supposed to communicate, relate to people, follow the laws, think about time, what's right to do, what's not right to do. Right, right. And it changes. It changes with based on the time of day or week or (laughs) what circumstances are going on because we have to adapt to our environment. And so we might have a certain culture today, but then it changes next week because something else is going on. So it's quite fluid. It can be in my mind, I'm thinking too. I think your point about it changes in response to what's happening around you when situations are different. And it certainly, if we're talking about American culture, it's evolved over the years as the population has changed and people learn things and try things. But there are still some themes that I think are core to the American culture that we still see today. Okay. So with that in mind, can you lay the groundwork for us, uh, Lainey, about some history of the United States that, you know, has shaped the culture, the basic culture that you're referring to? Absolutely. So anytime we talk about the history of the United States, it's a little complicated because there's the story and then there's the deeper look at the American history. So the story that I learned as a kid, there was this wonderful land. And let's just talk about the U.S. today, physically as it is today, 50 states, 48 contiguous states running from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean. Two parts of our country are not physically connected. Alaska, which is north of Canada, and Hawaii, which is in the Pacific Ocean. But the other 48 states are contiguous. We're big enough that we're almost the same size as China, which is big. The story, original story, is that the land was open and empty and that a group of brave Europeans came here looking to create a new country where they could be free and everybody would be equal. Now, we know and we actually acknowledge today that there was a Native American population throughout the country that was displaced by these initial explorers, people who were looking for a different life. I think that's part of a theme that got handed down all the way through, certainly to my grandparents, looking for a different life was what brought them here. So we had European settlers who came and settled the country meanwhile displacing the Native American population. And we know that we have had people come to this United States, after all, we're talking about the immigrant experience, have come from around the world through the years, 250 plus years of this country existing. And the country has a mixed record of welcoming immigrants Sometimes we have, sometimes we haven't. The story that we were taught as children is that we were always welcoming people. But if you look carefully at the history, that hasn't always been true. And we know that some people came here willingly looking for something. And we know that others were brought here against their will. And their descendants are still fortunately still here. 
So we have a mixed record, but there are some things that I think trace back to those original European settlers that are still part of the American culture. One of them has to do simply with the size of the country. That was very attractive and exciting. People could find their way, set up something new. There was all this land to be explored. And it left, I think, a mark in the American psyche, even to Americans today, that big is better. We have some of the biggest countries in the world. We laugh about Americans' love for big cars. And we are known to have big voices. I can imagine that some of the listeners to this podcast will be laughing, thinking about, oh, yes, those Americans can be very loud. We like big and we like new. And that's a theme for as part of a U.S. culture. Now, the founders of the country were fortunate because all this space had everything they needed mountains, oceans nearby, rivers, means of transportation, rivers. There were arable land for growing food. There has been minerals that were useful in the development of the country. So one of the things is that America and American culture developed with this idea that there's abundance, there's enough for everybody. And one of our stories we tell ourselves that's part of our culture is that you can be and do anything you want because there's endless opportunity. Now, in today's 2022, you could argue that point, and that's a conversation for another time. But if you're talking about cultural attitudes, ours stems from an idea of abundance, And that has still influenced the thinking of Americans and the story Americans tell themselves today. So I see uh, there's a idea here about the tea parties. Is that important to the conversation? I don't think it's really essential to the conversation. That's part of the founding story of the original Europeans who came to settle in the U.S. and the Tea Party was their rebellion against the king and paying taxes to the king. And I don't think it's essential to our conversation about the culture today. So going into the next chapter on U.S. cultural values and attitudes, can you talk a bit more about the whole issue of high versus low context culture individualism, and so forth. Absolutely. I'd like to start with our idea of do it now, because the American attitude about time is so critical to how we do business and how we connect with people. Americans like the Swiss and the Germans are very focused on time and task and schedules. I think this is a personal perspective, not something that I think people always think about, is that those original settlers that came when the land was open and they were building out a country were in a hurry to do things. Some of it was they needed to get 
land cleared and plant food so they could feed themselves and build buildings so that they could be have shelter. And I think some of that urgency to do things, plus the industrial revolution and the beginning of factories with regimented time, shaped the American attitude about time. I always say that the way Americans talk about time, think you've heard these phrases, we talk about saving time, using time, losing time, shaving time off a schedule. It's as if we thought and think that time is a three-dimensional object, as if we could hold it in our hand, and yet time is a concept. But Americans are always in a hurry, and they're always focused on schedules. Now, I'm painting with a very broad brush here. I have friends, and probably some of your listeners do too, who operate on their own version of time. I have a friend and we call it Sharon Standard Time because she never quite matches her schedules with the rest of us. But on the whole, Americans are very focused on time and schedules. And I did a workshop with a company based in New Jersey that had brought in their people from Europe. And one of the things we did was an exercise around time because they were having some disconnects in response times. So we did an exercise to try to understand what everybody's idea of how long you had to respond to an email and still be considered to be polite. And the Americans were pretty much in agreement that eight hours to 12 hours to maybe 24 hours. And then there was somebody from Italy who said, well, I suppose a week would be too long. And everybody in the room started laughing because a week, you would think you probably would have gotten three emails asking why you hadn't answered the first one. So how long we think and what we think about what it means to be on time is really one of the core concepts for Americans. And it shows up in business as thinking we should be the first to market, the first to do something. We're in a hurry let's just get it done. You know, the Nike slogan, just do it, I think has an element of that rush. You know, let's make a decision, move on and get going. Now, you mentioned high context, low context. Those concepts really relate most closely to the idea of how we communicate to each other. So low context culture refers to how we communicate with each other, how we share information. In a low context culture, the meaning of what we're saying is in the words. So America would be considered very much a low context culture. We have expressions that say, just spit it out. Tell me what you, I need to know. What's the bottom line? We're very focused on getting information, data, and facts, and we try to be efficient in our use of words and be clear. So our focus is on communicating what you need to know in a business sense so that you can make a decision and we can move on. A high context culture, the meaning is not just in the words but also relates to the relationship between the parties. And it is in cultures, for example, Italian, French, Chinese, 
much more focused on relationships and the importance of relationships. And that with that comes a concern that all communications should consider the relationships within the parties. There is an emphasis on being sure that the conversation or the communication doesn't in some way damage the relationship. Now, that probably still sounds a little obscure. So let me tell you a little story. I worked when I was at FITM with a woman named Michelle, a French woman who born and raised and lived in Paris and still lives in Paris. But she actually also lived and worked in San Francisco for a dozen years. So I used to tease her that she was very French, but a little bit American. But her style of communication is very definitely high context generally. And we worked on student travel. We used to take students to Paris every summer. And I would put together a schedule. I'd send it to Michelle. And then I'd call her so we could review it in detail. And uh, when she said, well, that looks good. Okay. Then I'd say, great. And then sometimes she'd say, it looks really good, except are you sure we should see Bruno on Tuesday and we should have chicken at that restaurant for dinner Friday night? And I'd say, yeah, this is why I think so. And these are the reasons. And she'd say, okay, if you're sure. And off we'd go doing what I outlined. But sometimes when we debrief, I'd noticed that one of those things maybe didn't work as well as I had hoped. So after a couple of times of her saying, are you sure about something and it not working as well as I'd hoped, the next time she did it, I said to her, okay, what am I missing? And then it was like a miracle because then she had a list of things that I'd completely missed, never would have thought about, but she wouldn't come out and well, if you and I were talking, Simone, and you saw me making a mistake like that, you might just say, Lainey, that looks really good, but this is why I think that seeing Bruno on Tuesday might not be the best choice. And we would figure it out and move on. But for Michelle, that would be too much like telling me I made a mistake. She wanted to be sure that she didn't insult me. And she figured that I would take the hint. I didn't take the hint. People in low context cultures like me don't listen for hints. We listen for yes, no, let's do it, let's not do it. We listen for data and facts. So high context culture usually is more subtle and indirect than a low context culture. That story was perfect. I started seeing myself in the picture because I remember when I first migrated here and having some of those um, interactions with different people and trying to make sense of what does this person mean and never really getting a straightforward answer. And I still deal with that today. And I would get so frustrated because people and I would say, like, why don't they just say what they really mean? Like people are just dancing around each other. When the funny thing that you're saying that is part of my experience in the American workplace has been that in some environments, people are so afraid to offend and they want to be politically correct. So at times, that sort of straightforwardness that you're expressing as a part of the American culture doesn't quite come out because people are so afraid, like in like in uh, like in a government office, you know. So people just kind of dance around issues, and it gets very frustrating for 
for me as a younger person, when I see some older generations that they're so careful in just massaging things and sugarcoating and, and you just never get to the point. So I've dealt with that over the years and trying to make sense of it. So it's interesting as I listen to you, some, it's making sense to me. And I think you make a very good point because in today's environment, in a business environment, there is much more emphasis on being careful about what you say in order to avoid insulting someone or saying something that is now considered inappropriate that 20 years ago, nobody would have thought about. So it can feel a little bit like caution is required, especially in a corporate setting. And that's part of Understanding the culture of wherever you work is what's the flexibility about being direct? Do people really want to hear all the details or the truth? Or do they want to hear that you like their idea, but you don't really think it can work in the marketplace? So culture and conversation is really complicated. If you are aware that a culture, for example, French, Chinese, Italian, is very relationship-focused, you will find that there is more careful conversation than you will find overall in the American culture because the relationship comes first. And for Americans... Time and task getting things done come before building relationships. We think that we will get to know you while we work together, as opposed to having to know you before we start to work with you. Can I shift gears here for a minute? Sure, sure. Go right ahead. I want to talk about communication, which is our American approach to write it down. We might shake hands on a deal. Then we'll say, but that's great. We have the outlines of a deal put together. Now let's get the attorneys to draw up the contract. And in many parts of the world, a handshake is really what makes the agreement and the contract, no matter how it's written, is not as important as the relationship between the two people who made the agreement. And that can be complicated when you're working with Americans because one of the benefits of writing things down is so is related to the American mobility within companies and historically when you work for a, especially a big American company the chances were that if you were working in San Francisco today next year you might be working in Atlanta and the contract that you sign with somebody in San Francisco is there forever for whoever comes next to see what the agreement was about the project or the process. And yet people who are much more relationship focused than we are can find our insistence on writing things down, signing contracts as insulting that you don't believe that they'll stick to their word without writing it down. So it's just something to be aware of. Now, I want to switch to talk a minute about individualism, because that is very much a foundation value and attitude in the American culture, is that everyone is an individual. Remember, one of our founding documents 
is the Declaration of Independence, which says in part, all men are created equal, entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And over the generations, it's come to mean my life, my independence, my happiness. We are very much an individual focused culture. And I always think about Starbucks when I think about this, that they were so clever when they first opened up. We don't think much about it now, but it was quite revolutionary when they first opened up. They'd ask you for your order and you, for a cup of coffee, you could tell them you wanted chocolate in it and you wanted cinnamon and you wanted some special kind of milk. In fact, Starbucks can make 87,000 different drinks. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. Uh, Yeah, it it is. I I love that statistic because it's so amazing. And that reflects that they are catering to the individualistics started with the Americans. And it used to be that they would write your name on your cup. So when they had made your fancy drink, They would call your name, Simone, your latte's ready, or Lainey, your coffee's ready. And that, I thought, was really a recognition of how much Americans like being recognized as individuals. And that was one way to say to each customer, you are a special individual and I recognize you. And I believe that was one of the things that really drew people to Starbucks. Now you can buy online special Nikes and you can buy custom-made clothes and you can buy all kinds of things that are custom-made for you now. The American likes to be recognized as an individual. And we believe that we can create the life that we want, the job we want, to live where we want. And we certainly saw that again in the last three years in what I call the great migration during COVID of people who chose to move. I have a colleague who lived and worked in San Francisco and decided that he'd always felt that he would go back to San Antonio, where he grew up, when he retired. And two years ago, he decided, I'm not waiting. We're working remote. I can do my job from wherever. I'm going back to San Antonio. And he made a commitment to his company that he would come back for a business week once a month and reconnect in person once it was okay to do that. But now he lives and works from San Antonio, doing the same job he did in San Francisco. And that's very much at its heart, an American approach. We look for the toward the future and we believe that we can create the life we want for ourselves. It's a lot to take in all at once, isn't it, Simone? I know I'm going through a lot of stuff. In but, you know, it's making sense as I listen to you. It's like, you know, some of the puzzles are coming together because you've done such a great job in this book of kind of just putting things together, creating a framework for us. Because I think for immigrants who are new, 
it can be overwhelming. I mean, because there's such a salad bowl, if you will, of people from around the world. And depending <laughs> on who you're dealing with, you can be getting so much of pieces of different cultures. So we're so grateful that you've spent the time doing this. And as I listen to you, I'm thinking about my daughter, who's now about to be four on Friday, Ooh. on July 1st. And she she prizes herself with saying, mommy, I did this myself. She's been coming up in, this, in the Montessori education. And I don't, I don't know about the other schools, but they pride themselves in, you know, individualism and independence from very early. And the, anything she does around the home, she is so proud of it. Mommy, I did this all by myself. And so I'm, I'm listening to you and I see her so clearly from this age, she's been started to have this independence, this individualism, I did it by myself, mommy. Absolutely. It's one of the things that I think sometimes makes it hard for, for Americans overall to participate well in teams because each person is very much has been brought up. I'll do it myself. I'll do it myself, mommy. I can do it myself. Absolutely. Any of us who have raised children are are familiar with that theme. Wow. That's amazing. Wow. That's that's a good point you're making there. So the other thing on the list you had was, uh, you know, talking a bit more about waiting your turn. And I'm, I'm talking now, for example, can you elaborate a bit about that? Well, yes. Somebody said to me, you Americans, your conversations are like a tennis match. You bounce the ball back and forth. Everybody takes their turn talking. And that is, I have to say, on a personal note, just one of the things that's so hard for me to always wait my turn to talk. I get excited and I want to interrupt. And I know that is not acceptable. We're about wait your turn. I'm talking now. It's my turn to do something. And it is considered appropriate, whether you like what someone else is saying or not, to let them finish their comment before you talk. It's a way of being polite. Think about it as a conversation is a bit like a tennis match, but people who come from other parts of the world are accustomed to people interrupting and sharing the conversation and building on it. And it can be very hard for them to adapt to the American approach of one person at a time, take your turn, don't rush. And that's something probably that your daughter's learning at school too. One at a time, wait your turn. You'll get your turn. Everybody gets to play, but you have to take your turn. That too is a very American approach. And that can be in American business culture, that notion of wait your turn has really been upended by the generation called millennials. And I think Generation Z, the ones just entering the workforce, are not about waiting my turn and putting in my time and waiting 15 years before I get promoted. I want to do something meaningful and I want to do it now. Join us next time for part two of this episode. Tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, we welcome any and all support. 
If you have not done so already, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence. <laughs>